We're in uh, Joel chapter 2, near the end of the chapter. There's uh, only five verses remaining in chapter 2, and then chapter 3 will finish the book. I think we might possibly complete that tonight. We'll see where we go from here. But verses 28 and all the way through to the end of chapter 2 are part of, in our Bibles, the second chapter, but in the Hebrew Bible, they consist of a chapter all by themselves. The Hebrew scholars determined that verses 28 through 32 in our Bible justified a uniquely separate chapter because of the content. And it is a very important portion of Scripture, uh, and it is one that is quoted in the New Testament, and so we'll be looking at that uh, as we proceed. But uh, just by recapping what we were doing last week, we spent a great deal of time going through several verses of Scripture, talking about the end days, obviously, that's the focus of Joel, but we focused primarily on the tribulation period and something uh, along the lines of a beginning of a study in the millennial kingdom and the various events that uh, pertain to both of those time frames that we looked at last week. And we glossed over a lot, and I hope it wasn't too awfully confusing. We're going to continue to focus on uh, much of that same information that we looked at last week, but from a slightly different perspective. But here in chapter 2 of Joel's record, beginning with verse 28, we read the following. And it came to pass afterward that I will pour out, or rather it shall come, not it came past tense, but it shall come future tense to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillar of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls." Now, there's a couple of things that we want to remember that is the focus here in Joel. The end times, the last days, the various things that we've looked at so far and the things that we'll look at tonight pertain to a time not yet fulfilled in any events that have yet occurred in the world. They are exclusive to the very last days. However... In these verses that we just read, again, they are quoted, and they're quoted by Peter as he began to explain a phenomenon that was taking place in Jerusalem 50 days after the resurrection. We know that specifically because it was the day of Pentecost. That day was a feast in Israel that was observed 50 days after the first Sunday that follows the uh, Passover uh, event. And so, counting from that Sunday, 50 days, brings us to this place where Peter now is making a statement in Jerusalem 
to explain a phenomenon that was taking place on that very day, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the 120 souls who were gathered together in the upper room, and they were seen in the temple area speaking in unknown languages and proclaiming the wonderful works of God in that public setting, something strange was taking place that had never, ever been seen before. And again, Peter quotes Joel, and I'd like you to turn with me, first of all, to that portion of Scripture in the book of Acts, which is found in chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. It's the beginning, really, of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, because of which over 3,000 souls were saved in that one day. But again, Peter responds to the amazement of the people who were beginning to ask a lot of questions. What is going on? What does this mean? They were hearing these people speaking in tongues that they obviously could not have learned from the various nations that were all of them represented by the Jews who had gathered together in Jerusalem on that day. Because the Feast of Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, was a feast that required all of the males to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there. One of the three feasts out of the year that they all would have to come to the city of Jerusalem. They were all there from various places, all over the Roman Empire. And they all had nationalities because they were living in those various places and they would speak the languages of those particular regions. Some were Parthians, some were uh, Medes and Elamites, and some were from Cappadocia, from Pontus and Asia, all over the known world. And they're hearing these 120 men and women speaking in languages that they could not have learned. They were recognized by their attire, by their accent, that they were Galileans. They, they were known to be people who were not from those regions, in other words, and yet they were speaking in these languages that everybody was recognizing. And so they were asking, what does this mean? And But others were saying, hey, these guys are just full of new wine. But Peter now steps in and explains that it can't be because they're drunk, because it's only the ninth hour of the day, which means that by that early hour in the morning, it would be impossible for anybody to have consumed enough wine to get drunk. But Peter goes on to say, standing up with the eleven other of the, the apostles. These are not drunk, as you suppose, beginning with verse 15 of chapter 2. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he continues to quote pretty much exactly what Joel has said. Read it with me. Verse 17, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my maidservants and on my menservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus had been crucified and he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that they need to understand that is the reason for these events that have just taken place. But taken 
especially in, into your mind the fact that Peter quotes the whole entire portion of verses 28 through 32 of Joel's chapter 2, including the portion that speaks of signs and wonders that are taking place in heaven and in earth with smoke and fire and, and the sun turning into darkness, the moon into blood. And then he adds, before the coming of the great and awesome, awesome day of the Lord. Now we know that that kind of stuff did not happen then. The Holy Spirit did come down and the Holy Spirit did uh, pour himself out onto and into those believers. And that in itself was not a complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, but it was significant to the extent that these are the kinds of events that Joel was talking about when he gave that prophetic word with regard to the last days. So Peter is not saying that Joel's prophecy is completely fulfilled. He's just simply saying, this is that which... Joel was speaking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there's more to come. It hasn't yet all been fulfilled. Peter isn't trying to say that. He's just trying to say to the people who were there that this phenomenon was predicted, prophesied by Joel. And it's the beginning of something that is going to continue throughout the church age. But it really, in Joel's perspective, wasn't actually being applied to the church because Joel knew nothing of the church. So it's got a sense of dual prophetic statement that Joel is making, both a statement that will be fulfilled, which was done according to what Peter said, but yet is yet to be fulfilled because it has not yet all of it been completely fulfilled. So the remainder of what we're going to be looking at is how does that prophecy fit into the very end of time, into the period of time that we've been talking about that refer to specifically the last days associated with the tribulation period and the times following the tribulation period. So that's what we want to focus on now. But the idea of the Spirit being poured out on all flesh was a, an idea that was very, very foreign to the Jewish people. They were very familiar with the Holy Spirit but the Holy Spirit had been only given to certain individuals that were used by God for certain situations. And there are many of them in the Old Testament scriptures, in the historic records that we have, beginning from uh, Moses' time through the time ending with the last of the prophets. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. The Holy Spirit was uh, dwelling upon many of the prophets, many of the kings, many of the Levitical priests throughout their history. But the significance of this prophecy is that Joel says it won't happen just on those select few. It's going to happen on all peoples, no matter what their state, both male and female. And whether they're poor or wealthy, it matters not. It will be on all flesh. That was the idea that was very, very confusing to the people of their day because it hadn't yet happened and how could it possibly be that the Holy Spirit would fall on everybody? Well, fortunately, also in other portions of the Old Testament, we find references to this very same thing. So 
we need to dig a little bit to find out where those particular locations in the scripture are, but there are three that I want to point out to you that are specific to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The first one will be in Isaiah chapter 32, if you want to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 32, and we'll look at that portion of scripture beginning with verse 15 of Isaiah 32. Isaiah is talking about the complacency of the people of Israel, and then he moves on from the disappointment that God has with his people to a promise that God wants to make for his people that was given to Isaiah. And this would have been about a hundred years after the statement that Joel has made regarding the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15 of chapter 32 of the book of Isaiah says, until the Spirit is poured up or poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of the righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Take note of the fact that what Isaiah is saying is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be the beginning of a time of restoration, a time of great blessing. And that yet hasn't yet happened in Israel. It's a reference to the very last days, again, as it was with Joel. So it is here in Isaiah. They will rest in peace and they will have assurance of God's protection forever. Righteousness, quietness. That's a wonderful promise. Now, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 also speaks of these various things. And beginning with verse 24, this is a great chapter of promise for the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36 begins, first of all, with a promise to the land of Israel. We looked at some of that last week. The land will be restored from what it once was, a place like what Mark Twain had said was just full, full of rocks and a place where you could get malaria because of all the swamps. It was a terrible place in his lifetime. But since 1948, the Jewish nation has revitalized the land and it has come alive, just as Ezekiel prophesied, to become one of the most prosperous nations agriculturally in the world. And then he goes on in chapter 36, where we'll be reading now, to talk about the people who will be brought back into the land and reestablished as God's people in that land. And again, that did not happen until 1948 when Israel became a nation and they are now in the land and they are fulfilling all of what was spoken with regard to the people coming into the land and becoming a nation once again. But this area of chapter 36 that we're about to read has not yet been fulfilled. He says in verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. He's still got a work to do in the hearts of the Jewish people. Some of this has not yet taken place. 
He goes on in verse 26 to say, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then in verse 27, listen, he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. This has been partially fulfilled, but the pouring out of the Spirit has not yet taken place. And the things that God is promising here are partly fulfilled, yes, but there's much, much work that God intends to do on behalf of his people. We've only seen the beginning of what God will do in the restoration of his nation. Many of the Jews are agnostic and many are even atheistic. They do not accept the God of Israel for the most part. There are some who are turning to the Lord, and I believe that that turning to the Lord will increase in the latter days as we move closer and closer to the time of the end. Remember, there is only going to be about a third of the Jews living in the land who will be able to enter into the kingdom. The rest will be utterly destroyed during the tribulation period. But he's going to pour out his spirit, as he says here, upon those who will be the remnant that he will call to be his own. That will take place again throughout that period of time that we know is the time of Jacob's trouble. The time that Jesus said was a time like no other time has ever been nor ever will be. We discussed a lot of that particular period of time in our last discussions last week. And I don't want to spend a whole lot more time on that, but understand that that time will not come until the Antichrist appears on the scene and makes a treaty with the nation of Israel for a period of seven years. Daniel chapter 9 describes that. It's described also in other places in the book of Revelation. There are many places where we can go to study the details of all of that. And I have done much of that already. There is much more that could be said, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on the tribulation period except to say that the Lord will bring that period to an end in the right time at the right point of time when he steps onto Mount Zion when he comes from heaven with all his saints that's us he'll be riding on a white horse and so will we we'll be right behind him as he comes down first to the territory just east or southeast of Jerusalem just outside of the area of southern Jordan known as Basra in the olden days from a city that is known today and was then as Petra where God will have protected that one-third of the Jews. He's going to go there first to bring those Jews from there with him and us to Jerusalem. And he's going to set his feet on Mount Zion according to the word of God that we have. But before we get to that, there are two more portions of scripture in Ezekiel that I'd like to read and then we'll move on to that description of what I just spoke of. 
Chapter 37 continues to speak on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and you'll find that reference in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37, where it says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place in your own you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now the Jews came back from Babylon after Joel and after Isaiah, but not after Ezekiel. It's interesting that the Babylonian captivity lasted for 70 years, and then they did come back into the land. But it's important for us to realize that that was the first of two returns. Isaiah speaks of that. He talks about that in Isaiah chapter 11. We're not going to go there tonight, but I just want to mention to you that Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that the Jews will be returned to their land a second time. Now, the first time was Babylon. The Jews were taken out of the land again during the Roman Empire, the conquest of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and there was no Jew able to call that land his own country during that entire period of time from 70 A.D. until 1948. That's the second time that Isaiah referred to. And in chapter 39, now in Ezekiel, there's one more statement that Ezekiel makes that we want to take a look at. And it's found in chapter 39, uh, verse 29. It says in verse 29 of Ezekiel 39, and I will not hide my face from them any more, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Now, when does that take place? Again, it started to take place on the day of Pentecost with the church. Those were all Jews who were blessed to be the recipients of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Peter went on to say at the end of chapter 2, and it's very important, that that outpouring of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for Jews. It was for everyone who would believe. Everyone would be saved and have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon them and in them who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the church age. But the Jews rejected Christ. The Jews have been outside of the land and they have been without the truth of God's word as it pertains to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That will not continue for the Jews until the end of the tribulation period when Christ comes and sets his feet upon Mount Zion. That happens again at the end of the tribulation period, that last time of the seven years where the nations come together and fight against the Lord is a very quick and sudden ending to that battle. It's described in, in Zechariah. So if you'll turn there to Zechariah chapter 12, we'll read the specifics about the coming deliverance of Judah. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning with verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day 
There shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of at Hadad Rumon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by himself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And going down to verse 6, he says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So there it tells us very specifically that this is Jesus we're talking about who sets his feet upon Mount Zion. And when he does that, he is going to split the mountain in two. And the mountain will be split from the north and the south, creating a large valley east to west from the Mount of Olives. And there will be water flowing from that valley all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and all the way to the Dead Sea. And those waters that flow from that area of the valley between the split Mount Zion will be waters of purification. And all the waters will be refreshed. That's going to be a great miracle in itself. If you recall in the book of Revelation, several of the plagues had to do with the water supply, turning the water to blood, turning, making the water bitter so they couldn't drink. It was a time of terrible devastation, or will be, and that water will refresh all of the waters throughout the entire globe. Although the Dead Sea enters into an area that is 1,300 feet below uh, sea level, it's an isolated body of water, and there is nothing else attached to it other than the Jordan River. However, the other part of that river is going to flow into the Mediterranean Sea, and from there, the water could simply go throughout the entire globe, across the Mediterranean, into the Atlantic Sea, across into the Pacific Sea, around to the other side of the world, through Asia, and back again to the Indian Ocean, and then into the Asiatic Sea, and again back into that region, surrounding the entire globe with refreshed water supplies. That's going to happen in that time, when the Lord comes, establishes his reign on Mount Zion. That's going to take place. He tells us in verse 1 of chapter 14 of Zechariah, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people, the one-third that we talked about, shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through that mountain valley, for the mount valley, mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee and you shall... As you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. That's us. Again, a reference to us. 
Colossians 3.14 says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's no mistake. This is the end of the tribulation period that is spoken of by Zechariah and by Joel as we look now at what he has to say, particularly with regard to the events that were just described in Zechariah. We're also going to take a look at another place in Isaiah and Revelation in a little bit of time. But before we do, let's look back now at Joel as we continue to read through the remainder of this great prophetic word of God. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, For behold, in those days, what days are we talking about? The last days. And at that time, what time are we talking about? The time of restoration, the time of the Lord's return to establish his kingdom upon the earth. He says, At that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Does anybody know where Jehoshaphat's valley is? Well, the answer to that is no, we don't know. There is no place in the Word of God other than here in Joel's record in chapter 3, here in verse 2 and also in verse 12, where he mentions the valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat is a word that means the Lord is judge. And he's going to judge the peoples in that valley. That's the place where Jesus described in Matthew 25, which we talked about the last time, where he separates the sheep from the goats and he judges the nations. He'll gather all the nations together in Jerusalem, in that valley, I believe, that valley that is known as, according to Joel here, the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now you may, may remember the king Jehoshaphat, one of the great kings of Judah, a godly man, and he was very troubled at one point in his uh, reign because there were three nations that had come against him. And he cried out to the Lord, Help us, Lord. We're too weak to fight against this great number of people. And then an unknown prophet comes to Jehoshaphat and he says, This is the word of the Lord to you, Jehoshaphat. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he told Jehoshaphat, All you need to do is go out with the Levites before you and have them praising the Lord. And the praises of the Lord will completely eliminate the problem that you are facing. And it was so. God confused those three nations that had come against Jehoshaphat. They started fighting against each other and so many of them perished in that particular event. Now, whether or not that was in a valley that was then known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, we're not told. But I speak of that because Jehovah is judge. That happens to be what took place. God judged those three nations, and he's going to judge all the nations of the world in the last days in much the same way. He is going to confuse them, and he is going to defeat them by the word of his mouth. And we see that Again, in more than one place. But here in Joel's prophecy, he says he's gathering all the nations to this great valley of Jehoshaphat. 
And he continues in the latter part of verse 2, And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Does that sound familiar? What's happening today? The land is indeed almost completely divided because of the nations insisting upon that land not belonging to the Jews, but rather to the world. Jerusalem was captured by the Jews in the 1967 war. They took the city of Jerusalem and they called it their own city for the first time since the Roman Empire days, since 70 A.D. They did not take the mount, the temple mount. They left that to the control of Jordan. However, the whole city was intended to be the city of the Jews, and they wanted it for their capital. It's only been recently that the world is beginning to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but not everybody. Only a handful of nations have moved their um, embassies there. But it is the Lord's city. It is the city that God calls His own. Psalm 85 talks about the fact that it's His city. And the people who were born there, who are registered there as having been born there, are significant in the nation of the Hebrew people. Read chapter 85 of the book of Psalms and you'll be delighted to see that. These are His people. That is His city. It is His land. They will not divide it as much as they have wanted to. Now it is subdivided into segments of territory that should belong ultimately and will belong ultimately to the Jews. The Gaza Strip, for instance. They had at one time been occupying that territory. They gave the land to the Palestinians in the hopes of establishing peace. Peace never came. Instead, Hamas has been firing rockets from Gaza, continually harassing the people of Israel. In the north, on the Golan Heights, Syria has wanted the Golan Heights. It does not belong to them. They tried to take it, but the Jews fought back and captured and kept the Golan Heights. And they're going to continue to keep the Golan Heights because it is a territory that guarantees that they will be able to see anything coming from that direction. Jordanian territory, the West Bank, that's part of what used to be the nation of Israel. It's been now occupied by the Jews, but not recognized by the world as belonging to them. It's disputed territory. It belongs to the Jews. All of that. They want to divide the land. They will not succeed. Not according to my Bible. And not according to what God says. He will protect His people. And He will not let that happen. He goes on to talk about this in verse 3 by saying, They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? Take note of the fact that he's talking to Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, and he's talking to Philistia, which is modern-day Palestine. He's saying, basically, what do you have against me? What do you think you're up to? What do you think you can do? Are you trying to retaliate? I will retaliate against you. He says in verse 4 again, 
But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. (laughs) I'm kind of, uh, sort of amused in a way, distraught because of the danger involved, but the rockets that were sent just last week from the Gaza Strip into Israel, there were over 1,300 rockets that were launched. About 150 of them landed in Palestinian territory. They got turned around. And that's returning their retaliation upon their own head. As far as I'm concerned, that was a partial fulfillment of what God is speaking about here. He says in verse 5, Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. These are some of the things that had taken place in the history of the Jews. He says in verse 7, Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them, and will return your retaliation upon your head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the peoples of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to the people far off, for the Lord has spoken. I'm not exactly sure that we can know exactly what is being spoken here by Joel, whether it has been already fulfilled or not. If it is in the last days, apparently there will be some degree of uh, ownership as far as the Jews are concerned with the people who are in the land. I don't really understand how that will play out. I'm not really sure that we can be specific or dogmatic about it. But according to the Word of God, here in Joel, the Jews will be victorious. That's the point that is being made here. He says in verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Now here, the invitation is to all the nations to beat their plowshares into swords, their pruning hooks into spears. Now, if you're familiar with what is in the the, uh, property in New York in the UN building, there is a garden there with a sculpture. The sculpture was made by, interestingly, a Soviet sculptor back when the Soviet Union was a threat to us. It was offered as a gift to the United Nations and put in that garden at the United Nations building in New York. And inscribed on that sculpture are the words, Plow your swords into plowshares, or beat your swords, rather, into plowshares. It's a quote of Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 1. There, Isaiah is saying just the opposite of what Joel is saying here. There is coming a day when they will indeed beat their swords into plowshares. But here, Joel is inviting the nations to do the opposite, to beat their plowshares into swords. Why? Because he's inviting them to a battle, a battle that is the Lord's battle in the last days. It is a battle that is described in great detail in the book of Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, we see 
reference to the church for the first time since the first three chapters. The church is absent from the world throughout the entire period of time that is described in the book of Revelations, beginning with chapter 4 and onward until chapter 19. And at chapter 19, the end of the tribulation period is about to unfold. And beginning now with verse 11 of chapter 19, we see what was described that we read earlier in Zechariah and earlier mentioned in Joel. It says in verse 11 of chapter 19, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Take note of that passage in verse 13, dipped in blood, and reread what Isaiah speaks in chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah, where he comes from Basra, and his robe is dipped in blood. Same time frame, same event being described here. Verse 14 of Revelation 19 continues and says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's us. That describes the church. We are clothed in fine linen. Very explicitly stated for us. That is what we are to expect. Not only that, but fine linen that is white and clean, and we will follow him on white horses. Prepare to ride, my friends. If you don't know how, don't worry. You'll know then. If you've never thought you'd like to ride a horse, I think you'll change your mind when you ride that horse. You're riding on a white horse with the Lord from heaven to the earth. And it says in verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the wine fierceness of, and wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of all kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all peoples, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the king, kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. That's a description of what we know that was recorded earlier in the book of Revelation as the Battle of Armageddon. It happens at the end of the tribulation period, before the beginning of the Valley of Judgment that will take place immediately following that great battle where all those people will be slain by the Lord as he comes and sets his feet on Mount Zion. He's going to complete that which he has promised in that day. That's what we have to look forward to. 
That's what is being described back in Joel, reading forward now from verse 12. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Again mentioned as it was in chapter 3, verse 2. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wicked, wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Here he calls it, instead of the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision. Because a decision has been made by those who are gathered together in that valley at that time. They are either for the Lord or they are against the Lord. And those who are against the Lord will be slain as described in Revelation 19. Those who are for the Lord as described in Matthew chapter 25 will enter the kingdom that the Lord will reign over them for a period of a thousand years. That's when that will happen. It will take place. After the multitudes are judged, the nations before the Lord gathered together from all the corners of the world. He says in the latter part of verse 14, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then it says, verse 15, the sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Take note of the fact that that's what Joel had said at the end of his prophecy in chapter 2, verse 32, uh, verse, uh, rather 31, and was also confirmed by Peter when he quoted Joel in Acts chapter 2. It hasn't yet happened. It's still yet to take place. That's the final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Verse 16 continues and says, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. He will protect them. He will protect all who are there. What about the church? Well, we'll be there too, but we'll be in our glorified bodies. These people will be in their mortal bodies. They will enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies and they will live for a very long period of time as the Lord restores the, the world back to the conditions, I believe, of the time of the Garden of Eden. He continues to talk about that in verse 17. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valleys of Achaicus. Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom the desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. That is a promise of the word of God. He will acquit them. You and I have already been acquitted, thankfully, because of the thing that Christ has done at Calvary, on the cross. We have that acquittal that is given, though we were guilty, even as the Jews were guilty of great great sin against their God. So were we once, but then we were saved because of our 
belief in Jesus Christ. And that acquittal has been granted because of the finished work of Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished. They also, the Jews who enter into the kingdom, will have that same acquittal by God. It's an amazing book in the Old Testament that I encourage you to read. It's a short book of Hosea. Not quite as short as Joel, but it's right there next to Joel, so it's very worth reading. Hosea is a prophecy about Joel, I mean rather Hosea, having taken a wife whose name was Gomer. And she became a prostitute. And she left him. And God spoke to Hosea and said, go back and buy her. Convince her to come back. And she did. And she bore him children. And then she left him again. And then after a season of time, God spoke again to Hosea and told him to bring her back to himself and forgive her. And he stands as an example of what God has done for us, the church, and also for the Jews as a nation. They are not his people. They are going to be his people once again. Just as we were not his people, but we became his people because of his grace and mercy. That is the promise of God. And we are about to enter into that time, my friends. I believe it's right around the corner. So may the Lord bless us and continue to use us as the light continues to shine in this dark world while the church is here. For when the church is taken, this evil place will become more and more evil still. And there will be hell on earth, literally. God bless you. Till next time. Grace and peace.